Father, thank you for invading the darkness of this world and bringing light, love, and liberty. We're here this morning exercising that liberty. And I'm praying, Lord, that it would grow, that our knowledge of you and our encounter with you would both touch us and change us. So now, Lord, I ask that this journey in your word would bring the same hope that Christ brought 2,000 years ago. Bless us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few summers ago, just outside of Aspen, Colorado, a mother was awakened to the screams of her children. It didn't take long for her to appear in the doorway of the rented house as they were there vacationing. And when she peered out onto the front lawn a couple miles outside of Aspen, Colorado, she saw something that required a decision to be made. For there, on the lawn of their Aspen home, was a cougar on top of her five-year-old boy. It didn't take her long to make up her mind. She burst through the screen door, was racing towards this animal that had the head of her five-year-old son in its jaws. And as she charged the animal, she pulled off one paw and then proceeded to pry the jaws of the lion open. Grabbing her boy and scooping him up, she raced toward the house where her husband, who had just returned from a run, was there to catch the last chapters of this amazing deliverance. What was the problem? The problem was the mountain lion had something that did not belong to him, and the mother was determined to get it back. Now, friends, I want to remind you on this Sabbath that precedes our Christmas celebration that in this little encounter is constituted the plight of the human race. And as I was anticipating uh, standing here before you this morning, I could not but help think of David, who in 1 Samuel 17, after he's offered the armor of Saul, says, I can't fight in these. And Saul has told him, you can't do this. And he says, listen, when I was a boy keeping my shepherd's flocks, my father's flocks as a shepherd, a bear and a lion at different times came out. They took my sheep. With that encounter, David describes him going out and grabbing the lion by the beard and slaying the animal. Now, this is not a normal encounter. And as I have mentioned before, there's no moral equivalency. There is no no semblance of really sensibility about a man's life for a sheep. And yet, this is one of the ways in which David typifies the experience of Christ in that Jesus himself comes after that lion that's looking for someone to devour. And after 4,000 years of darkening human history, when it appears in the jaws of the mighty Roman government, which would slay innocent babies in order to maintain its authority and its throneship, Jesus came to deliver 
you and me, darkened as this place was. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. I want to talk to you this morning about spiritual healing. My sermon is entitled, The Healing Presence of Jesus from Wound to Wonder. Genesis chapter 1. God in five days has spoken the world into existence. On day six, he's continuing to create. And as a crowning act of creation, he comes to the monarchy of our planet. I'll begin with verse 25. Genesis 1, first book of the Bible. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now follow this closely. Then God said, let us... I touched on this imagery last week when I talked about social healing. There is no tighter bond in the universe than the bond of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making up this triune oneness. God himself decided to make us a social creature. God said, let us make man in our image. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to be made in the image of God. What does it mean today for you? What does it mean for the people you love, the people you want to reach? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his image, in the image of God, created him male and female, he created them. Now it's interesting, as we understand this ministry of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we see here not only the pronoun our, but we hear the statement made in our image three times. There's something distinctly focused and purposeful about being made in the image of God. And while we are inclined to think of that as physical representation, this morning I'm going to suggest to you it's far more than physical representation. Being made in the image of God has far more to do with the inner man and the inner woman than it has to do with the outer man and the outer woman. You were made... To reflect the beauty of your Creator. God made you to reflect in a dark world the rays of light that have not been totally extinguished from the human race. It's interesting, turn over to to chapter 3 when we come to the fall, that we find this phraseology of the fall repeated three times as well. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We don't know how many days or decades have separated the creation from this moment. But we do know that there was a moment of truth for the human race. It says in verse 6, When the woman saw... I want to place that emphasis early on. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, another reference to seeing. 
and that the tree was desirable one more time. To make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This story taking place some 6,000 years ago, two people, the uncontested monarchs of a fantastic creation called planet Earth, and in this moment, insinuated doubt about the character of God leads them to abandon that internal sense of certainty that God has given them in a relationship, and they look, they look, they look. They can't see anything that's wrong. There was in that moment, no doubt, a divine contest waging in the mind of first Eve and then Adam. There can be no doubt that the unseen presence of God was there saying to them, don't take this step. Don't doubt. Don't deliver over your inheritance to this deceiver. And yet, the fruit probably dropped into the hand of Eve. No immediate ill effect, which is the way Satan works. No immediate ill effect. Hear me, friends. No immediate ill effect. That's how it always works. She brings it to her lips, and the juice is sweet. And moments later, she's handed it off to her husband, who without deceit, repeats her action. A very different sin than Eve's. What happened in that moment is still happening. There is in the heart of every human being a battle that is still raging in reference to being made in the image of God. God's presence in the experience of humanity has not been lessened. It has only been intensified since that moment. The power of a convicting voice directing out of an education, whether it's from parents or, or church or from the scriptures themselves directly, that ever echoing voice of God that is coming as it appears from nowhere, perhaps yet from within. Take your Bibles and turn over to the little bitty epistle written by John. Find the book of Revelation and back up through the book of Jude and into the book of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 5, the author references to this resonance, this sensitivity that the gauge of our heart has for the voice of God. 1 John chapter 5, one sentence. John is concerned that people should believe on Jesus. And this is what he says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. This is what John Wesley would call the inner witness. On his father's deathbed, he appealed to the Wesley brothers, don't forget 
the inner witness above all things. Pay attention to the inner witness. That voice that still responds to the pluck of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you're doing the right thing. No, you're going the wrong way. There's something about being made as a son or a daughter of God that yet responds to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John comes the book of Acts and then Romans. So this sixth book in the New Testament. And the book of Romans, looking at chapter 1, Paul references to this as well. Romans chapter 1. Paul is developing in the first three chapters of the book of Romans as a religious legal expert the fact that every single person is bad, lost without God, and yet not without the ability to respond to the divine appeal. In this first chapter, he says in verse 18, after declaring the glory of the gospel, which is for all, Jew and Gentile, he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It doesn't say that the wrath of God is revealed against the people. It is against this disease which has blown out in epidemic proportions to destroy the people themselves. And the wrath of God is against the ungodliness, the unrighteousness. It's against those things which were never to be encountered by the human race that would drag it down and destroy it. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness And then we come to verse 19 and we hear the echoes of this witness again. Because that which is known of God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Paul will go on to write that mankind will be without excuse for two reasons. One is the ability to see like Adam and Eve saw in the garden the manifest manifest beauty of God. They could see that It was a good world. They could also see that the fruit looked good. God's creation speaks today as in no other time except before the fall with a powerful testimony that none of this could be an accident. But God speaks in another way as well. He speaks through the inner witness. He's speaking to His children, not so deformed and marred from the original handiwork of his tender loving care to where they can't hear God talking to them. You see, friends, there's a reason you should wander and you should wonder. There's a reason. Last night when we got home from visiting with my family, my wife got out of the car and she said, Honey, look at the stars. And we just stood there for a little bit, looking up into the sky, said, Yes, it's like Abraham. Look at the stars. That still small voice, that inner witness can be heard for those that will silence the soul long enough to hear it. For those that are willing to accept the divine diagnosis, to accept the divine leadership of God, that voice is still speaking, praise God and glory, hallelujah. I bought a book the other day, not a new book. 
but it'll be a new read for me of a new science that's developing. It's a book written by Mitchell Waldrop. It's called Complexity, the Emerging Science at the Edge of Order and Chaos. There is something unique happening in our modern scientific world. So I decided to get a review of the book since I haven't had time to read it yet. And I read a, a review by Robert Dare, who's a research seminar in engineering systems at MIT. And he talks about what Waldrop has done. Waldrop has developed what's called the Santa Fe Institute. And what they're trying to do is start a new branch of science where they explore how all these highly complex systems come together. Biology, economics, all kinds of systems. And, and they believe that they exist right on the edge of potential chaos. And yet there is this amazing complexity. And I was pleased when I read in the book review these words. What's evolving at the Santa Fe Institute is a common language and a framework for thinking about complexity that is enabling experts to establish connections between a multitude of disciplines. And then in his review, he quotes a Stuart Kaufman, who's a, a doctor and a, a biologist and a professor of complex systems. He's held that post at the University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania, University of Calgary. And in quoting Kaufman in the book review, he grabs onto a metaphor, a illustration you've heard before. You know, if you're the man and, and you're blind and you come up to an elephant and you get its snout, you say one thing. If you get its leg, uh, you've got a completely different description. If you get its tail, if you get its ear, you've heard that metaphor, that illustration before. But what I was so pleased about in a book called Complexity, The Emerging Science at the Edge of Order and Chaos, was that these scientists were at least humble enough to use this metaphor. And this is what Kaufman says. The very existence of a common framework is reassuring in the sense that most of the blind men at least seem to have their hands on the same elephant. Now I want to tell you today, in the last 200 years, we've watched an ever-increasing confidence by some that not only is there is no, that there is no God, but this world could have somehow found itself into existence from an amazing progression of simplicity to complexity but in this modern age with the complexity of science and society showing itself on every front we are living in an age without excuse there is absolutely no way with what we know now that we can still accept the simplicity of the origin of the species and come away saying, yeah, that's how it happened. We even have new branches of science that are acknowledging this complexity. And in the midst of the acknowledgement, they're at least humble enough to say there's so much on the front side that they're not terribly unlike the metaphor, the illustration, the moment when someone gets a little piece here and a little piece here. Friends, we've been told there is no God. We've been told that it all happened by accident. It reduces us to a nihilistic or meaningless way of existing with no future and no hope. And by the way, 
the sounds of no hope and no future are reverberating more loudly in society than ever before as we watch societal systems unravel and come undone and look like they might implode. Yes, you see, we're made in the image of God and the voices of the past that have suggested that somehow it all happened accidentally, that it's been progressing by its own merits, its own nature, its own undesigned ability to progress. Those sentiments and those voices are diminishing in some sense for the honest of heart soul and they can know because the evidence is not just what they see. There's more reason than ever to stop and think and be quiet and they can hear what God is trying to what God is trying to amplify that we were made and that we are loved and that there is purpose and that there is hope. Look at verse 20 of Romans while you have it open. It says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, and by the way, with the advent of the microscope and molecular microscopy, this is more than ever before, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And verse 21 is probably more the point. For even though they knew God, or at least knew there was a God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The darkening of the human heart. Jesus told a parable. He said, A sower went out to sow. He sowed good grain. But not too many days or weeks later, they show up and they look at the field. And while it has that beautiful spring green carpet of of wheat or, or barley or whatever it was, as they kneel down to look a little bit closer, they can see that it's not exactly as they intended it to be. For in that field, there is not only the wheat that they sowed, but the weeds, the tares. And the workers look at the master and they say, should we uproot the weeds? And the master says, no, let them both grow together until the harvest. As the harvest develops, it will become more apparent what is the good fruit of the ground and what is the weed. It is this very process that is one of the most distinct signs of our age at this moment as we watch the wickedness of the evil one who began the plight of pain and misery for all who live on this planet. We see that darkening of the mind. It's come into our modern societal arena and we are paying a price for dishonesty and deception and lying like we've never paid before. The human mind is darkening into a polarization of predetermined belief. It doesn't matter what truth is. And yet in that moment, in this arena, in this hour, God is looking to have a new burst of glory to the fact that we were made in His image and He still speaks in the quiet of the soul to the human heart. This is where we are. After man sinned, 
And in the midst of the crisis in heaven, Satan was at work. With intense interest, one author pens these words, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. Why? Why? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why would all the angels who've lived with God watch with intense interest to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth? Have you ever asked yourself? And if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the leader of the angels had declared that the principles of God's government make forgiveness impossible. What a lie. Satan himself, enamored with his own beauty, begins a journey with what is called the mystery of iniquity. It cannot be explained. Standing in the very presence of God, no evil to behold, and yet evil somehow fosters and festers in the heart of this covering angel, this cherub who turns into a fiend. God offers to himself, the book of Great Controversy reveals, God offers to Satan, Lucifer at the time, an opportunity to be redeemed. How? We don't know. Forgiven? Yes. And he refuses it. And yet he still beats the drum of the twisted dynamic of holiness, that somehow holiness is anger and retribution. It is judgment and condemnation because he has long since passed the place where he can see what real holiness is. He declares that the principles of God's government make forgiveness impossible. Is it any wonder that the angels stand back expecting God to step in and destroy us all? Had the world been destroyed, he would have claimed that his accusations were proved true. He was ready to cast blame upon God and to spread his rebellion into the worlds above. But instead of destroying the world, God sent his son to save it. Through corruption and though corruption and defiance might be seen in every part of the province, a way for its recovery was provided. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I want to show you this morning on two ends of the spectrum God's amazing patience and love. I'll start with the Pharisee. Nicodemus, the teacher of teachers, a lawyer of the law, a religious leader, a man of renown in Israel. He came to Jesus one night early in the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus. There was a man, verse 1 of John chapter 3 of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? 
cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is taking the metaphor of our literal birth for what is the physical existence of man, and he's moving it over into a world that many today deny. They deny the existence of evil, unless it's evil. They deny the existence of the spirit world of good and evil, unless, well, I shouldn't say that. Actually, there is some fascination with both sides of the coin. But by and large, it's relegated to an arena of either mystery and misunderstanding or self-made sentiments of assurance. Nicodemus is not aware that outside of the actual doing in his life and the physicality of who he is, there's a human nature, a carnal nature that's, that now tends to reflect naturally a self-centered orientation. This is a similarity to Satan that we can't be proud of. But the image of God has not been totally effaced in man. And, and there on that encounter where Jesus drew him out, he encages Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you need a new nature. Nicodemus is not ready to receive it, just as many today are not. One of the worst things that can happen in our postmodern society is for somebody to be convicted and feel guilty. Nobody's supposed to feel bad. This is the age of discovery. This is the age of exceptional enlightenment. This is the age of of self-proclaimed truth. Nobody is supposed to feel bad. And looking back two millennia ago to this story, you can see that nobody's ever wanted to feel bad. Nobody wants to change, although we want assurance. It was no different for the very religious, very respected ruler. It's impossible to be born again. You can't go back into your mother's womb and be born. And Jesus says, listen, there's a lot of things you don't understand, like how the wind works. Now, we understand that today. But the wind blows wherever it wants to. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. Quit trying to think you have to be the master of all things. Humble yourself to announce that there are mysteries beyond you, and those mysteries include the mystery of a God that would seek you out. And give you back what you gave away. The clue is there. Unless one's born of the water and the spirit. Something happens with the divine presence of Jesus that touches a human being. And all of a sudden in the security of knowing that the God who made them still loves them. The God who ordained right and wrong forgives them. A change can come about. Nicodemus did not change right away. He left that night. Our second encounter with Nicodemus is seen in the book of John. Flip over to John chapter 7. Nicodemus doesn't move much, apparently. And sometimes the journey to salvation is a, is a slow, not seen movement. Almost a movement of stealth by both the Spirit and the one upon whom the Spirit is moving upon. They've sent the officers to arrest Jesus. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like his popularity. And the officers come back without Jesus. Verse 45. 
The soldiers come back. They came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to him, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Listen, friends, the inner witness. They were hearing what the Pharisees refused to hear. The soldiers were touched by the power of God announcing in the soul that there was a better way. There was hope. There was love. There was forgiveness. The Pharisees then answered them, you've not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him. Have they? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. And then Nicodemus makes a powerful, beautiful choice and a political mistake of colossal proportions. He speaks up. You see, the inner voice has been wrestling with Nicodemus. He goes to bed every night and he thinks of the words of Jesus, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit. He thinks about the fact that he needs to be born again. And that's been wrestling with them. The spiritual violence of the quietness of his soul. He wants to be away from it, but he doesn't. And he dares speak up. And the Bible reminds us this is the same man who came to him at night. And he says this much. Our law does not judge a man until it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They turn on him like a brood of vipers. They have no interest in the truth of what he says. They only hate him for any modicum, any small little bit of integrity and sincerity and honesty. He's exposed them. And they say, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. But let's go to that last encounter in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus has watched from the sideline so many times. And finally, he comes to a moment when he determines that he's made a mistake. And the mistake has been that he has waited too long to declare Jesus Lord and King. Jesus has hung on the cross. He was there from 9 o'clock in the morning until into the middle of the afternoon. And for those hours from 12 to 3, darkness was over Jesus and over the face of the earth. The ground is convulsed. Jesus has cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's asked for something to drink. And because it was tainted with a mind-altering substance, he refuses it. The labored breathing, the mocking and the deriding, and finally the ground shaking. And when it's all said and done, the Roman centurion declares, surely this was the Son of God. And the inner verse, inner, the inner witness in Nicodemus resonates with an amen. Verse 38, Then after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted him permission so he came and he took away his body. And Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, you always find this reference with Nicodemus. 
too embarrassed to come in the daytime, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings and with spices. At the very crisis when Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage, the message of divine grace. Through every age and through every hour, the love of God has been exercised towards the fallen race. And notwithstanding the perversity of men, the signals of mercy have been continually exhibited, if you want to see them. And when the fullness of time had come, the deity was glorified by pouring out upon the world a flood of healing grace that was never to be obstructed or withdrawn till the plan of salvation should be filled. God loves the sinless angels who do His service and are obedient to His commands, but He does not give them grace. They've never needed it, for they've never sinned. Grace is an attribute shown to undeserving human beings. I'm reading from testimonies to ministers. We did not seek after it. It was sent in search of us. God rejoices to bestow upon all who hunger and thirst for it, not because we're worthy, but because we're unworthy. Our need is the qualification which gives the assurance that we shall receive the gift. Now let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23. There were two criminals hanging on the cross with Jesus. The Bible tells us in the other Gospels that they were both joining in the mockery and the derision. But there was something different about Jesus. No angry outbursts. No cries for mercy. No hatred rising up in regards to the abuse of both the church and the government. And for one of these criminals something begins to change. That inner witness, that quiet voice begins to grow louder. His mocking words fall into the silence. His derision dies out. And he continues looking at Jesus who bears the marks of divinity. And finally, as this undeniable witness is bearing impress on his soul, he speaks up to the other criminal and rebukes him. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. But then he goes farther. It's not enough that all three of them are going to die, but now he'll distinguish the difference between them and Jesus. And we indeed are suffering justly. Wow. How many people refuse to see anything but what they want to see. They're no different than Eve standing at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
refusing to give God's voice an opportunity to get traction in their reasoning, in their life, and in their lifestyle. This man, though he will suffer, this man, though they'll come along and break his legs in order to get him off the cross by sundown Friday night, this man who at the current moment has probably been whipped and beaten similarly to Jesus, is in a rare moment in his life. How many people do you know in jail who actually say, I'm here because I did it, it's my fault, and I deserve this? Not many. And yet at this moment where this mortal is looking for some little vestige of hope, he senses in Jesus something that almost nobody else sees. We're suffering because we deserve it. We're under the same condemnation, but this is just for us, but not for Him. And then He looks to Jesus and He says, Remember me. What was it about the Christ that could birth such hope in the midst of such hopelessness? You know the man's record is not just splattered, but it's dipped in evil, which looked to have apparently effaced the image of God in this man's heart. But there on the cross, with a flood of healing grace beginning to flow, he hears the inner witness. And he says, you be quiet. You need to listen. And Jesus says, I tell you today, you have what you want. You will be with me in paradise. No promise to go there on that Friday. Jesus himself clearly did not go that Friday. He told Mary Magdalene on Sunday morning, I've not yet ascended. Move the comma, just one word, one direction, and all that needs to become clear becomes clear. Jesus gave every hope on that day for a man whose life looked pretty hopeless. So friends, where are you in the spectrum? Is your life over here where you don't want the inconvenience of conviction that says, you know, some of what you're doing is wrong? You know, you're not, you're not like that group over there, but, you know, the condition of man, the, the carnal nature is still there. It's not been fertilized. It's not been unrestrained. You had good parents. You made some better choices. But the core of the issue is still the core of the issue. The whole head is sick, and it needs what only I can give. It needs the divine touch again. It was one thing for me to create Adam in the garden, but now I have to do for you more than I did for him. It's much, it costs me so much more to bring this hope to you than it did for me to spread the molecules out and hold the dirt in my hands and form him and breathe into him the breath of life. But I'm going to breathe into you a new spirit. I'm going to I'm going to touch you and change you from the inside out. I have the power to do it. Whether you're in this group over here who's not sure you really need it and don't know that you want to make the journey or whether you're over here so hopeless and knowledgeable that there's no reason in the world that anybody should give you the time of day. The full spectrum of heaven's heart is displayed on the cross and the grace that flows is a flood of healing grace. It's for everyone, everywhere, in all time. The presence of Jesus to heal us in our heart. Spiritual healing. Right relationship to God. Yes, God came in search of us. And in searching for us, He paid such a high price. 
In order that he might reign as supreme ruler, Satan sought to overthrow Christ. I'm reading from a manuscript from 1902. And he planned to carry out the murder of Christ for no other reason than that to the last he entertained the hope that Jesus would not endure a death made as horrible as infernal wisdom could make it. He endeavored to prove, listen to this, Make up your mind, friends. Is there good and evil in the world? Is there good and evil in the world? Is it an accident? Then make up your mind. Because he endeavored to prove the correctness of his assertion. Is there a reason all the angels expected Christ to rise up and destroy us all? Yes, lies had been told. Misrepresentations had been made. And he endeavored right to the very end to prove the correctness of his assertion that Christ was not self-sacrificing. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in his hour of supreme anguish. Listen, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry was a result of the withdrawal of the divine countenance. And that anguish pierced his soul with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. Never means never. So great was his agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. So what do I want to get done? I want to do this. I want you to know, Paul writes in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. What's he pressing on to? I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Friends, I want you to envision that unnamed mother of that five-year-old boy. It doesn't take a fraction of a second to determine what needs done. Under more normal circumstances, she might cower in the corner of her camper in the Rocky Mountains. Under more normal circumstances, she might scream. But under these circumstances, she will do what is but a vague representation, a veiled representation of what the love of God is and does. And bursting through the screen door, she pounces on the mountain lion and pulls off a paw and opens up the jaws and scoops up a little boy who has to be taken by airlift from Aspen to Denver. This is not some fluke. In the origin of the species, this is the image of God reflecting itself in the moment of man's extremity. You see, friends, David's rescue of the sheep and this mother's rescue of her boy is in effect what Christ did when the lion looking for someone to desire, devour has the human race in its jaws. Only when Jesus goes out to meet the foe, it's different. He grabs the devil by the beard. And in the process, the devil sinks his venomous 
fangs and his powerful claws and jaws into the very essence of God, which is the sense of belonging. And he seeks to separate Jesus from every last vestige of support, knowing the power, knowing the oneness of the Trinity, knowing that if he could pull him apart, he might give up, he might give in, the world might be Satan's. And all of his lies would be established as true. Instead, Jesus goes and he grabs hold of you and me and he says, this one's not yours. This one belongs to me. And even though the fiendish, evil, heinous brutality of Satan all concentrated in those moments to where physical pain was almost not even felt. Jesus lays hold of us so that we might, like Jacob, who wrestled with Jesus by the Jabbok River so many millennia ago, might realize that hanging on to him is life itself. You see, friends, there were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter of the flock. But one was out on the hills away, far off in the cold and dark, away on the mountains wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Yes, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. Yes, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed. No, how dark was the night which the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Out in the bleak desert he heard its cry, all bleeding and helpless and ready to die, all bleeding and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are these blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for one who's gone astray ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They're pierced tonight by many a thorn. Yes, they're pierced tonight by many a thorn. And all through the mountain, thunders riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed, echoed round the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Friends, there is a God. And every lie that, has, that can be told about him has been told. And anguish so intense that his physical pain was hardly felt. Abuse so great that no collection of stories of trauma and difficulty could ever begin to compare. And Jesus... Trusting 
in the love of his father and motivated by the very love of who he is will die on behalf of man the second death the death for which there is no resurrection by faith he will lay down his life you see friends spiritual healing requires an acknowledgement that there is a God spiritual healing requires an acknowledgement that I am a sinner it doesn't matter whether you're a Pharisee or prisoner spiritual healing requires a knowledge of the self-sacrificing love of God who doesn't meter out forgiveness in little points of penance to get you to do what he wants. No, it initiates a new sense of value and purpose and freedom and joy that are not natural to this earth, corrupted by the touch of Satan. It bears the marks of his government. That's why it's getting worse. The fruit is ripening in the field. The wheat and the weeds. Friends, what we have to determine is, will we stop in this season and behold the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world? And will we make the connection with Jesus to receive the divine touch in which we receive the new heart and we begin to war against those things that were natural to us before? Yes, we belong to Jesus. And He would not let go And today we're celebrating. He wasn't anything they thought he was, but what they wanted was so different. And yet he's everything we need him to be. So in this Christmas season, you might be afraid that what Jesus is going to ask of you is everything you don't want to be. You might be afraid he's going to take away that special person, take away that special hope, that future, that game. Just look at the hands. Nail pierced. The scriptures say he withholds no good thing from those that trust him. And I'm appealing to every person in this room today, no matter what your past, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're afraid of, no matter how tainted your, your own sense of self may be, no matter how wounded you might be, maybe even at the hands of the church, I'm appealing to you today to let Jesus have perfect permission to touch and transform. These spiritual miracles are happening all around us, all over the world. But they're for us too. How do you hang on a cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? They knew in some sense what they were doing. It's in a completely different nature. That nature is a gift. Through the exceeding great and precious promises, we can become a partaker of that nature. At what cost? At what pain? This is what the Christmas season should best be known for. I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus our Savior could come forth to die for poor, ornery people. Far too tame of a word, by the way. For poor, ornery people like you and like I. 
I wonder. By his stripes we're healed. He took our eternal punishment on himself. We did deserve it. Heaven has a constitution. There are laws. They have been broken over and over again by not only you and me, but by all the people that preceded us. Jesus took it all. Amen. Became the new father of the race. And this is the season to look at the wounds that heal and to look at your own Savior who can heal the wounds this world has inflicted on you and wonder how could such good actually exist? Don't miss that opportunity, friends. Don't miss that opportunity. Look at the stars tonight and wonder how this little speck in the universe could be the center of attention. Hateful, rebellious, and filled with evil until Jesus becomes the wounded healer. He would have done it just for you he did do it just for you. And He did it just for me. Don't rush on with the world. Stop and discover the value of a soul. The value of your soul. Be astonished, O heavens, and wonder, O earth. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.